Hello, and welcome to the Epic Human Podcast. This is your host, Joe Blair, and thanks for listening today. In this episode of the Epic Human Podcast, we will be featuring Chris Anderson, founder and CEO of 3D Robotics, a drone software company digitalizing the construction industry. Chris is a New York Times bestselling author, former editor-in-chief of Wired Magazine, writer at The Economist, physicist, and research scientist at Los Alamos Labs. In this episode, Chris walks us through his incredible life, which includes a battle of the bands with REM, managing arguably the most important and influential magazine in the tech world, and accidentally starting the largest U.S. drone company in history with an astonishingly small amount of money, which eventually evolved into a software solution that's transforming the construction tech industry. I would describe Chris as an intellectual giant. His curious nature and ability to draw connections from a wide range of disciplines and industries is staggering. I truly enjoyed learning more about how Chris thinks and exploring how the rest of us can learn from his wisdom. So without further delay, please welcome an epic human, Chris Anderson. Right. Welcome to the Epic Human Podcast. Uh, I want to welcome uh, Chris Anderson here, uh, founder and CEO of 3D Robotics. We're recording right here from uh, the 3DR HQ. So thanks for having me here today, Chris. Thanks. Thanks for coming. Yeah. Uh, so first off, I wanted to thank uh, Ev Williams for connecting us. Um, was was glad that we were able to have that connection. Um, and I, I think, so first off, for context, I wrote this article on construction tech. Um, I think it, I, it was posted on World Positive, it was posted on, on Medium as well as LinkedIn, and I guess you saw that and, uh, and that, that was kind of the original uh, connection point. It, it was. I mean, I'm, um, I'm a sort of a convert to the built world and construction tech and the notion that infrastructure is really interesting. And um, there aren't enough people who are thinking about it. It's like the second biggest in industry in the world. Um, and you know the the number of venture capitalists who are really going deep on this one, you can count on one hand. Absolutely, I, I think we we absolutely share that. Um, so why don't we? Uh, we're going to start off just on, on you and your path um, because it, it's it's pretty interesting. Um, so as we start most podcasts, uh, I'm going to just ask you to start off. Where'd you grow up? What were you like as a kid? Um, born in the UK, um, American parents. Um, uh, I moved around a lot and uh, really struggled in school um, as a kid. Um, eventually failed out of high school, um, then failed out of college. And um, I blame Mrs. Williams, by the way, my fourth grade math teacher. Uh-oh. <laughs> I, I, you know, I was, I was having a hard time with long division, and um, she wasn't there for me. Uh, broke me, and it took like, like probably about 15 years to get back on, back on track. Um, but um, uh, eventually, I, I, I did get back on track. But uh, what's interesting is that um, although I went you know, deeply off the rails academically, I didn't like do other dumb things, and you know, didn't like you know, get, get don't have a police record and that kind of stuff. I ended up just going to the library and reading um, uh, Richard Feynman lectures. Ah. Um, because he was really cool. He played like bongo drums. <laughs> and phys physicists were like the, the, the cool scientist dudes of, of, of that era. The punk rockers? Yeah. Kind of, yeah. He was probably a little bit more sort of, um, you know, maybe a hipster might have been, um, you know, probably a little sort of, you know, maybe pre-hippie, post 
jazzy. Anyway, it was the original hipster, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he was very cool. So I ended up reading Feynman lectures, okay. which would end up paying off. When you were in high school, you read those? Well, I didn't say I understood them, Okay. but I definitely it was kind of like there's something here that I should try to figure out. And I didn't have any of the math context or something like that, but it was the Feynman lectures are fantastic and very, very readable, even if not understandable, if that makes sense. And just, just curious, at that time, what was it about the, the, the structured school system that was challenging? Because obviously, based on everything you've done since then, you're, you're motivated, you're hardworking, you're highly intelligent. So what, what, was, what was missing as you, look, as you look back on that? What, was it really back to Mrs. Williams or was there, or was there something else? I, well, I think I probably had a fundamental problem with authority uh, to begin with. Uh, I don't like being told what to do. Uh -huh. don't, don't tell my board. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, you know, and also, once I lost the plot in traditional academics, I'm like, to heck with this. You know, I'm yeah. going to find my own way. I didn't like. I didn't like make an effort to get back on the track. Gotcha. Because I kind of like lost faith in the track. I see. I blame them, not me. I see. I see. Yeah. I, it, once you once you get off that track, sometimes it's hard to to get back on, and it's easier or the the momentum you have is just to kind of keep going in the other direction. So exactly. Um, but it's interesting that you found your way. You found your own way in the library with the Feynman lectures. Um, okay, so so then so so then you were you grad you were you, were, you finished high school, uh, you, you know remedial um, went yeah. back took summer school and eventually got you know my GD and then um, uh, barely went to college got kicked out um, pretty much after the first semester and then played um, in punk rock bands um, and was a bicycle messenger until I was twenty seven. Wow! Wow! Okay, and and so so and that so what was that lifestyle like? By the way, it was it was it was great fun. Yeah. Um, I, but again, I didn't get in any trouble, and there's no police record. Um, <laughs> and you know, it's interesting. Like you know, uh, this is like good news to parents of, of children who are following on traditional paths. Right. You know, the problem being that, you, that if your kid drops out of high school, fails out of college, plays in punk rock bands. That does not mean they're going to become CEO of a drone company. It probably <laughs> means they're going to end up living under a bridge. So I would not like you know statistically. I'm not sure this is a, a you know a high probability path. Um, but um, it was an interesting time, and I, you know, one of the things in in, re in, re in re reflecting about the punk rock era of the called 80s mm. is that it was very DIY. It was the beginning of the democratization of the music industry. So it was these four-track tape recorders that you could mm. buy at mm. the time. Uh, obviously, electric guitar and garages were all democratizing in some way. Not needing talent, which is punk what punk rock <laughs> offered. Um, right. <laughs> um, and um, and then the, um, the 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 labels, not the labels, but the the, the actual pressing plants for the the EPs, etc. Um, had basically gotten their own technology to the point that you could press like you know 300 copies of a single or an EP. And they were, um, you know, micro labels like Discord. Um, if you were into the, the punk scene, um, mm. they came up around there. And then mail order, you know, and being able to have catalogs. And then these are all sort of like, if you if you if you pull back, these were the sort of analog equivalents of the internet. Mm. You know, rather than you know, rather than um, than you know, YouTube or, or, or Spotify or SoundCloud. You know, we had micro labels. You know, have small batch. Pressings of, of CDs and handing things, you know, sort of selling door to door or right. not door to door, but selling, you know, s s selling from record store to record store. You didn't um, have to get discovered by Universal or whoever. You, you didn't you have know. to get signed, right. assigned to a label. And then, um, you know, and then rather than, you know, radio play, you had this, you know, underground, which was zines and, um, you know, and, and mail order catalog. And, you know, the, you know, literally the, you know, if you were in a band, you spent as much time putting stamps on little mailers 
as you did playing shows. Wow. You know, you know, SoundCloud in, wow. in the nineteen eighties. So you know, so I, I think I, was, I think that you know the notion that you know, it's like it's like you know if, if you have a kind of a fuck the man mentality, mm. but you actually want to get something done. It was the first time that you could find your own path in music and build, if not a career, at least build an audience without having to go through the traditional label signing, radio play, selling out, um, etc. And I think the elements of that sort of DIY music industry and zines, et cetera, turned into blogging, mm. you know, turned into, um, uh, you know, file sharing, um, social media, et cetera. And I think we still see glimpses of it today. Wow, that's, that's a fascinating corollary. So, so, then, uh, so, so then you're 27, you're, you're doing this, and then, and then what changed? What was the catalyst that, that made a change for you? Well, I wasn't very good at music. And um, that, uh, that helps. <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, there, there's a there's this famous story about how um, the the best band I was in, not due to me, but just due to, I was just lucky to be around, around the right people, was a band called REM, and um, and we were really hot stuff, um, <laughs> you know, and we were the toast of Washington D.C. and we were putting out our our um, our first album. And our manager said, you know, it's the damnedest thing. There's this other band called R.E.M. <laughs> but don't worry, they're from Athens, Georgia. How good could they possibly be? And, um, and uh, so we said, oh, you know, their album's coming out at the same time. Their first single's coming out at the same time as our first EP. And let's just have a battle of the R.E.M.s, and the winner gets renamed the loser. That's some fun. Anyway, they crushed us. Yeah. And, and, and they renamed us um, Egoslavia. They and named they, you? They, they named us. Well, we were so confident that we were going to win that we, like, you know, basically we were celebrating our victory after our set. And, you know, they, their first song they came on with was Radio Free Europe, which is a pretty good song. Um, mm. as the first single, and we're like, oh shit. Um, <laughs> and they, and they, they knew they were going to win, of course, and they were just kind of, they, they were mocking us in the nicest way about how arrogant and confident we'd been, so they, that's why Egoslavia was gotcha. the name, and that's the name we put out our only album on, and uh, it was pretty clear that music was not going to be my path. And, <laughs> um, and so I was like, you know, I was like in my mid-twenties, and I'd had a lot of fun, and um, I suddenly was bored. Hmm. So I... Um, Found myself doing a crossword puzzle one day, and I thought, "What are you doing?" It's mm. like, "Oh, your brain woke up." You know, here you are in your mid twenties, and you just suddenly, you know, your neurons just suddenly kicked in. Mm. Time to go to college. Of course, this, at this point, nobody had any confidence in me, and my parent, no one would pay for me to go to college. So I secretly went to night school, um, yeah. and uh, I didn't tell my parents about it. And I, I, I decided to do the hardest thing possible, which was which was computational physics. Um, and I didn't tell my parents about it until I hit the dean's list. Mm -hmm. Okay. So and you so you paid for it yourself? Yeah. Okay. Student loans. And, and so you're doing <laughs> okay. So you so you're doing computational physics at night. Yeah. And and well, it was undergraduate first. Uh, it, 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 it later on would become undergraduate physics, and it would later on become computational. In a master's program. Or? I actually didn't didn't complete the graduate, but you know, as you as I got further into it, it became more specialized, and I ended up doing um, work at Los Alamos, which right. is a big physics lab. Sure, and that's sure. where it became computational. Sure. Which and the really cool bit, I mean, just kind of jumping ahead. Yeah. Um, I wasn't a very good physicist either, but um, as it turned out, physics was cratering the sort of the golden age, the Feynman age, mm -hmm. you know, the romanticized, you know, mid-century Manhattan Project, you know, physics. Um, you know, fundamentally, physics, physics' job is to answer big questions about the universe, which essentially means getting closer and closer to the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. And the closer you get to the Big Bang, the higher the energy levels, and the bigger the particle accelerator you need to generate those energy levels. And mm -hmm. it turns out that the cost of accelerator scales with like the square of the energy. Mm -hmm. 
And there's this thing, you know, basically it's like, okay, we're going to now need the superconducting super collider. But don't worry, it's only going to cost $9 billion. And then it was like 14 and 16 and 19, 32, and then they canceled it. And yeah. it was like, that's it. Yeah. You know, there were going to be, you know, we basically, we can't afford to do the experiments we need to continue the discipline. So it's either going to go theory or you're going to stand in line at CERN in Switzerland and mm. be author, you know, after 10 years, either be the, you know, be on a failed project, most likely, or be author 300 on a successful project and end up with an assistant professorship at Iowa State. And I said, I don't think I'm going to do that. Yeah. But the good news was that that same physics you know, world, um, while essentially failing to do physics because of the cost, was inventing the internet, mm -hmm. which was connecting physics labs, inventing the web at CERN, and inventing uh, big data, because um, the first big data and statistical techniques were the physics data that we had. Hmm. So those became very portable. Either you went and did internet stuff, or you went to Wall Street and did quant big data stuff, which was the next domain of big data. And was that a tough decision for you? No, I didn't know anything about finance. Um, <laughs> and I thought the internet was amazing. So yeah. I'm like, I'm going to go to the internet. So you were you were kind of one of the early believers mm -hmm. in it. And, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, um, although Wired Magazine in 1993 um, opened my eyes. I mean, I thought it was an amazing tool for scientists. And it didn't occur to me it would be an amazing tool for everybody mm. until Wired comes along. And it's like, cultural revolution, end of the nation state. This is going to be big. And I was like, oh, god. This, I, I had no idea. This is so much more interesting than I thought it was. I'm in the right place. I'm in the right time. I'm a true believer. So it was Wired that kind of helped you understand that? And that was before they had hired you? Yeah. Okay. And, yeah. and how did you find your way from from there, from there from where we're talking about to Wired? What was in between? Um, so I went I went from science to the science journals, science and nature, mm -hmm. um, where you know I was a writer and editor, met my wife, who's also an editor. Um, and... Um, and there, um, you know, there was a natural fit, you know, to, to writing about science. Um, and then um, over time, I became more sort of interested in the, you know, use of the internet in, in science. Mm. Um, and so then the Economist hired me to run their technology coverage. And I'm like, you know, yeah, I, I can do science and technology, but I think the internet's kind of going to be a big deal. Right. Um, let me do that instead. And they said, fine. Um, for the economist. For the economist, oh. yeah, yeah. And so um, they said, uh, "So what do you need?" And I'm like, "I'm going to need a computer and an internet connection." And they, at the time, didn't have computers, <laughs> didn't have internet connections, so they got the first of both of those. <laughs> dropped the British Telecom, dropped a T1 into the back of a PC, which is like my bandwidth has gone down <laughs> since then. Um, and it was a, it was a great time. You registered economist.com on my credit card, and and just was absolute true believer. Um, and. Uh, my, you know, the very first, um, you know, the, the Economist has these things called uh, surveys, which are like these 13, 14 page, you know, kind of mini books, if you will. Mm. And my uh, my first one was called The Accidental Superhighway um, in 93, about um, maybe 94, about about the Internet and um, and the notion of accidental, which again harkens back to this, you know, accidental music industry, accidental media, um, et cetera, the, the notion of emergent, you know, industries. Um, so that uh, that worked out really well, and then and then the and then Wired um, years later after Condé Nast bought Wired, um, they recruited me to to lead it, and I'm like, you know, Economist is a fantastic place. I didn't want to leave it, but Wired, you know, opened my eyes, changed my life, so I said yes. Sure, sure, and and from from being kind of more of a scientist um, mm -hmm. to being in kind of the news journalism type of world. How did you find that that transition? Because um, I know that a lot of the content was was overlap, but the transition from doing the physics, doing the science, then to using the other side of your brain and doing the yeah. writing or, or working with writers and th thinking about content tough. and marketing. 
That was tough. I'm not sure I have that other side of my brain. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm a, I'm a scientist first. Um, mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, uh, the economist, you know, science and nature, we're all scientists, all PhDs. Economists are mostly PhDs of various sorts. I felt very comfortable with the academic rigor of those publications. Mm. Wired, owned by Condé Nast, I mean, this is the Devil War Prada company, right? This is Vanity Fair, Vogue, oh, yeah. and Teen Vogue. And oh, wow. I didn't yeah, know you that. know, so I'm like, you know, my, my, you know my, my New York headquarters was, you know, four times square, and it's like supermodels, and Anna Wintour, and Graydon Carter, and, and I'm like, what am I doing here? <laughs> and then, um, you know, and I'm a kind of whiteboard math guy, and I go in, and everyone's a liberal arts major, and I'm like, I don't even know how to talk to these people. I'd never <laughs> met a designer before. <laughs> Um, and wow. so, and, and so, it was a kind of a disaster initially, um, and uh, you know, because I I'm like, this is a huge story, you know. Um, there's good rational, technological, even scientific reasons to believe the internet's going to be big. Here's the economic basis for it, and you know, and now I have a staff full of um, writers and, and 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 photographers and designers who are like, yeah, but how do we make it beautiful? I'm like, I got no. <laughs> and but I'm like, okay, I can solve this problem. Well, we're going to have like blue here and. And um, and to the credit, I hired I, I hired a really good team, and um, the the kindest thing they did is they um, about six weeks into the job, they pulled me aside and they took me to drinks and they said, "This is an intervention. <laughs> there's, a, there's some words that we're going to ban from your vocabulary." <laughs> the first word they banned from my vocabulary was "wrong." Okay. I, I, I must never say wrong again. <laughs> and the second words they banned from my vocabulary was the name of any color. I could no longer say <laughs> red or green or blue because that's not my job, right? That's the designer's job. Right. I could say something like hotter or colder or, you know, or simpler or, you know, or poppy, but I cannot tell them what color to use. And I was like, <laughs> okay. Wow. But we were, it worked out. I mean, but kudos to the, the, the culture, I guess, that you built that they felt they could say that to you. Yeah, because I, I think the majority of probably uh, office dynamics, they would – that would be tough to have that conversation. Totally, totally. Yeah. They managed up really well. I was mm. lucky. Gotcha. Okay, so so watch. So by the way, uh, Bob Cohn and Thomas Getz. Um, Bob is now um, running the Atlantic, mm. and um, and uh, Thomas Getz is um, in uh, health healthcare tech now. Um, oh, excellent. But they were they, they went on to do great things. Oh, I'm I'm not surprised. Shout out to Bob and Thomas. Excellent. Uh, and so, so then you're 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 with Wired uh, starting in 2001. One. Yeah. And for. Twelve years. Twelve years. Yeah. I mean, this is so. So this is taking over, um, you know, almost a year after the dot com crash, and just weeks before September 11th. Mm -hmm. um, so it was oh, wow. shitty, and it got shittier. Oh man. And you know, in retrospect, I mean, it, it was you know, I mean, you, you remember those days? They were shitty for everybody. Right. Um, uh, and um, but you also know that it's sometimes you know the, the darkest times sometimes is the best time to to move. You know, buy at the bottom kind of thing. And um, what I realized is that um, it was perfect uh, for, th for three reasons. Number one, um, uh, there'd been an influx of talent into the Bay Area, you know, mm. because of the dot-com boom. Mm -hmm. And after everybody created, especially, do, you know, the tech media, mm -hmm. I was able to hire really good people like oh. Bob and Thomas, who I couldn't have hired otherwise. Mm. Um, uh, the second thing is that, um, uh, you know, um, I was telling a story, an optimistic, enthusiastic story about the ascendancy of the internet, and we just had the dot-com bust, and everyone's like, it was a hoax. You know, you're <laughs> like the kind of stuff you hear about Bitcoin right now, but they were like, it's a hoax, I'm glad that went away, how stupid was that? Right. You know, CB radio, right? Right, yeah. 
And, um, and I was betting that there was, a, there was a Wall Street phenomenon, but that the underlying technology was, was secular and, and real and, and, and persistent. Um, but um, I couldn't figure out you know, how to tell that story. And, um, and I was really kind of figuring out how to kind of take my fundamental understanding or belief in the technology trends and turn that into a narrative that would, people would believe. And I would say I probably got it wrong for 12 months, but the good news is that it didn't matter how well you told that story for those 12 months because no one wanted to hear it. Hmm. So in other words, if you're going to fail, fail in an environment where no one can succeed. Because oh, no fail- one's listening. When no one's listening because <laughs> your failures are, are overcome by the marketplace's uh, failures. Oh, it's probably an investing story in this world. If you're going to make bad bets, make, make bad bets where the market's collapsing. Right. Because right. everyone's <laughs> no going to blame you. Exactly. <laughs> and, the, and the third reason it's a great time to take over is by the time w- when I finally got my feet and, you know, and, and the market sort of recognized that there was a difference between Wall Street and the actual Internet, um, and I started, you know, being able to tell the story well. Then my year-on-year growth numbers were amazing. Oh, so my, my sure. baseline, my baseline was now so low that I was doing 100%, you know, annual growth. Um, basically, you know, just just doing kind of regular performance, but the growth numbers looked really good because again, everyone had given up on the sector. And was the, I wonder if there was also an element of during that time, uh, kind of a a desire for some sort of optimistic story uh, in, in, a, in a kind of a chaotic time. I mean, were people looking at that time to technology as to what's, what's next, what's coming down the pipe that's unrelated to all this political, geopolitical activity going on? I, th- I would say that, um, that the answer is uh, no. Um, okay. uh, they still blamed technology for the froth. Um, oh. Fortunately, science, uh, as, as Wired had a couple other mandates um, science was one of them, mm-hmm. and um, and the notion of sort of radical change and you know reinvention. So um, after 9/11, um, we said, well, you know, the, the first thing is like, oh shit, you know, all of our belief structures are shaking here. And the second thing is, we said, well, you know, asymmetric warfare, which is really mm-hmm. what this is, kind of a very wired story. The very first wired issue, Bruce Sterling, was the future of war is about asymmetric warfare, um, and was like, you know. This, this sucks, but this is exactly what Wired predicted, which is that the traditional top-down power structure is going to be shaken by technologies, including jets and AK-47s and IEDs, et cetera. Mm. And the notion of, um, of, you know, of, of, of asymmetry, and you know, technology is all about asymmetry, the notion of asymmetry shaking power structures is our story. So we kind of rolled up our sleeves and made that our story. And then, um, you know, it's a scary story, but at least was relevant. And then as, as time went on, um, and I was looking for something that sort of was what drove technology but didn't have the stigma of technology. Science mm. was very much our savior. Gotcha. Interesting, my namesake, not, not my namesake, my, my doppelganger, the other Chris Anderson who runs TED. Right. Um, his business cratered. Um, he had a media business. His business cratered. He, um, a good friend, um, and he uh, said that he sort of found salvation in science. He wasn't a scientist, but he found reading about science, there was, this, 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 you know, Kevin Kelly, one of the Wired founders, says that science is the only real news, the only true news, the only sort of transcendental news. Hmm. And, um, you know, when all around you is falling apart, sometimes going to, you know, the you know, universal truths, yeah. you know, science, what's, you know, that's, that's it, feels, feels, it feels real in a way that sometimes other things don't. So he turned to science to kind of re-drown himself. I turned to science because it was, relevant as, a, as this sort of precursor to technology and something I knew very well. Mm-hmm. And people were willing to believe in science in that, yeah. that they weren't willing to believe in technology. And then later on, we could turn back to technology. Got it. But that, um, 
that that that, that did us very well for the, a couple of years. That's an interesting dichotomy. Okay, so so then you're there for twelve years, and then uh, and then what changed? Um, so you know, by day I'm putting out a magazine, which is you know words and pictures and design and things like that, and um, and you know it's, it's about technology and it's about science, so I feel like I'm scratching that itch, but I'm not doing it. You know, myself, I'm a manager. Mm. I was writing a bit, but that's a little bit of an indulgence. I wrote The Long Tail right. and, and Free and, and, and a couple other things. But, you know, but even The Long Tail was not intended to be an article. It was just a research product, project I did involving – I have to sort of take a little say, a tangent here. Um, um, so, you know, I'm a, I'm a scientist who spent, uh, you know, uh, seven years at The Economist. So these are my two toolkits. And I'm sitting here, you know, in Silicon Valley um, and thinking, you know, what – from a, your economist hat on, the, the, you know, the, the signals of 21st century consumer behavior are in the servers of the Amazons and the Ebays and the Googles of mm -hmm. the world. I mean, you know, right. for the first time, we can actually measure what people want, what they do, how they, you know, how they respond to infinite choice. Um, it'd be really interesting to see, to see what those signals are. What, you know, what, what is behavior telling us? Because I know it sounds obvious now, but back in those days, it wasn't. You know, people, economists were looking at, you know, Bureau of Labor Statistics, you know, data from, you know, five years ago. Mm. So it's like real time, you know, unfiltered data about at a massive scale about consumer behavior. So I said, I just asked. I went to, you know, the Amazons and the Ebays and music services like Rhapsody. And I said, um, can I see your data? And they're like, yeah, can we, you know, anonymize it? And, you know, but I'm like good research purposes. And right. we kind of worked out some NDAs and all that kind of stuff. And I got the data. And um, and the long tail just was the, the first time I just put the data in, in, in a in a you know crunched it in the spreadsheet. The long tail just popped right out. It was obvious that power law distributions were the shape of consumer behavior with unbounded choice. So 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 real quick. Um, first off, I didn't know that you'd coined the, the term huh? long tail. I mean, that's a lot of people probably don't know that. Um, but for people who don't. Uh, know it? Maybe they've heard the term, maybe they haven't. Could you just explain the very just basic idea? Sure. Um, uh, the long tail is basically um, a kind of ski slope uh, shaped um, graph. It's called a power law or Pareto uh, zip, um, um, you know, uh, distribution. But basically, um, you know, the presumption about consumer behavior, um, you know, prior to the internet was very hit driven, mm -hmm. which is that you know you're going to have a, a certain number of Hollywood hits, a certain number of television hits, a certain number of product hits, and and that you know it's winner take all. Um, and there's limited shelf space, there's limited screen time or, 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 or channels, or things like that. And so only the hits get out there. And the popular, um, which means that we must want hits. Now that, you, we, you know, what you realize is that there was a, there's a fundamental error in that assumption, which is if you only give people 10 things to, you know, to buy, they're going to buy one of those 10 things. It doesn't mean that's what they wanted. Right. What would happen if you gave someone 10 million things to buy? Well, they'd probably be overwhelmed by choice. But what if you gave them 10 million choices but had some sort of organizing principle, be it recommendations or search or whatever, you know, would they still buy those first 10 or would their taste be distributed over a longer tail? Right. And um, music became one of the first, the music, because it, can, it was so easy, because it's a digital product, could be so easily, you could have infinite supply and right. infinite um, you know, distribution. And um, that became the first test of that. And it turns out that, yeah, we like our blockbusters, but it turns out that, you know, there's a lot of uh, misses out there that although none of them are, are as popular as a blockbuster by themselves, they add up. The misses add up to right. a market as big as the hits. Right, And okay. that's the long tail. Okay, oh, fascinating. Wow, um, awesome. So, so, so that was your first book and then you wrote 
two two more after that? I wrote, I wrote three. So it's basically a trilogy. Okay. Um, uh, should I worry that this is going to sleep? No, no, no. no. Okay, it's, it's fine. Um, uh, uh, so it's a, it's a trilogy. They're all they're all really just just you know once you once you recognize the long tail, the sort of power law distribution, this is a sort of a canonical shape of markets un, unencumbered by scarcity. Then the next question is, and, and, and by the only reason, only way you can have unlimited choice is if the marginal cost of, dist of, of shelf space is zero, mm -hmm. or distribution is zero. And then you're like, okay, zero. So if the marginal cost is zero, then the price could be zero as well. Mm. Um, so free becomes an option as a price. What are, the, you know, what are the economic models of free? And it turns out there weren't any. Economics is almost defined as sort of you know, monetary economics, priced economics. The notion of zero as a, as a, as a, as a price is, it's just not considered economics. It might be considered sociology or, or you know, politics or something, right. but it's not considered economics. And I was like, well, that's a, that's a bit of a glitch, <laughs> you know, given that so much of the internet is free. Let's see if we can. Let's see if I can come up with. You know, I'm a physicist. I'm always trying to come up with grand unified theories. But <laughs> let's see if I can come up with a grand unified theory of zero, you know, as a price. You know what? Um, you know. Uh, you know. You thinking of zero as a marketing tool. Um, so rather than tell somebody about it, let them experience it. So that, that became freemium, mm. the notion of a free product with a, where 10% where of the audience would upgrade to a premium version. And because the cost of serving the 90 is zero, you know, the 10 is, is sufficient. Um, then I thought about, you know, so what, what are those, you know, what are those particular upgrade paths, the notion of the tiers and, you know, how do you, you know, how, you know what, what do you make free and what do you make paid? Is it, is it going to be, you know, is it going to be different features? Is it going to be seats? Is it going to be uh, tiers of customers, time? You know, think, things like that, um, and then um, you know went through the history of free as a you know free samples like that as, a, mm -hmm. as an example, and then went from industry to industry and says, well, you know, what would free mean in finance? What would free mean in you know mean in um, in, in entertainment, etc. It was it was fun. I, I I don't think in the end I I probably did come up with a grand unified theory of, of zero, but um, and and by the way, as with every one of my books, um, the um, the audience split um, almost half in between those who said it was wrong, not only wrong but but stupid and, 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 <laughs> and, 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 and impossible, and those who thought it was obvious. Hmm. And anytime you know, anytime you have an idea with, that splits between between you know, dead wrong and heads left in the obvious, you probably got something. That's a good sign, actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it also, I mean, I, I mean, a slightly ageist, but it also did tend to go um, in terms of uh, in terms of the you know the the age, the, you know, the, age. the demographics that young people thought free was obvious, right. and older people thought free was impossible. Because <laughs> wow. young people had grown up on the internet, and right. they knew everything. They knew that everything was free. Um, they grew up with Napster. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so that was so so um, uh, there was the long tail, then free is basically the economics of the long tail, the pricing of the mm. long tail, and then makers. My third book was just the long tail applied to physical goods, not not, not digital ones. And so you're writing these books while you're at Wired. Yeah. And then and then when did uh, when did the DIY drones come in? Yeah. So that was you know that was. Um, you know, again, trying to, you know, I, I learned best by doing. Right. Um, and uh, so I, you know, I, I was writing about stuff. I, so the long tail was doing, it was a research project. The, the other things, you know, running a magazine tends to be writing about or talking about, et cetera. Right. And I just, um, I wanted to code, I wanted to hack. And so I was mm. like, well, what should, you know, what should I do? I've got, a lot, I've got five kids. I should probably do something that's like with the kids, <laughs> right? Except the kids didn't want to do things with me um, <laughs> because I'm trying to shove science and technology down their throat. And um, so this, uh, so I thought, well, robots. Kids love robots, right? Turns out kids don't love real robots. They love CG Hollywood robots. And I was like, okay, 
would be more interesting robots. Flying robots, that could be cool. What's a flying robot? And so anyway, long story short, um, I, I, you know, we had a Lego Mindstorms kit and a, and a radio controlled airplane and I was Googling flying robot. And um, one night when I figured out the flying robot is a drone and a drone is a airplane with a brain, an autopilot, and an autopilot is basically the components that are in a Mindstorms, Lego Mindstorms box. I made the kids um, sit down at the dining room table and put together uh, uh, an autopilot out of, out of Lego and code it. And then the next day we took it out in the field and it kind of worked and the kids lost interest and I was like, holy shit, what just happened? <laughs> started a website, DIY Drones, and took off and became a community. And, and then long story short, we ended up putting um, a couple million drones in the air. Um, yeah, this this notion of the you know that it's the punk rock thing. Yeah. We kind of punk rocked the aerospace industry. Right. You know, these were our electric guitars. These were our four track tape recorders. This was our you know small batch pressing plant and zines and all this kind of stuff. We just we just did it, but we did it with with flying robots. And and you told me this story um, about the uh, the your friend or, or one of the contributors to to your website in Mexico. Yeah. Can you tell that story just because it's sure. fascinating. So, um, uh, so you know, we start with a community. Um, I, you know, I, so I created this site, DIY Drones. It becomes a community. The community starts, you know, writing code and developing stuff, and that's really cool. And then the next generation comes along and says, that's amazing what you're doing, but I don't know how to compile. I don't know how to fab PCBs. Can you just do it for me? So I'm like, okay, a kit will be a good thing. You know, pizza boxes, you know, bits and pieces that we get, get from China, get the, kid around the kids around the dining room table to pack the boxes, et cetera. They, good news, they sell out. Bad news, the kids won't do it again. <laughs> and I'm like, um, I think I need help. Um, so somebody out, you know, went to the community and you know, asked a couple of the smartest people there whether they would be willing to help me out making kits. And one of them, Jordi Munoz, um, said, yeah, I got a little time. Um, I hadn't met him. He's just a guy, smart guy. He was flying helicopters with a Wii controller, which seemed really cool. And I'm like, great, um, what do you need? And he says, um, I'm gonna have to buy some components and be about 500 bucks. So I sent him a check for $500, check, check. And he sent me back pictures of him, you know, in his garage, fabbing boards. And then he sent me back more pictures of a bigger garage and then a small factory and then other people. And, um, you know, by the time I met him, which was a couple of years later, we were um, making, we, now, that wasn't even a company. Was, I, mean, I don't think we bothered registering the company until we'd hit like $5 million of revenues. Um, we were making more drones per month, no, per week, than all of America's aerospace companies combined. Wow. From a, you all know, from what it, what it now expanded to a quite large plant in Tijuana, Mexico, in addition to one in San Diego. And I'm like, Jordy was amazing and, um, you know, did this all on cash flow and chutzpah and, you know, picking place machines he bought from eBay and, you know, just, I'm a huge fan of Tijuana in general. We still have a big office down there. But, um, you know, what a, and he turned out to actually be 19 years old and a, and a, and a, and a drop, you know, high school graduate but college dropout, very similar to me. Actually, right. he was kind of <laughs> like, he was kind of like me. It was me like 20 years earlier um, but, you know, rather than playing in punk rock bands, he was hacking Arduinos in the garage and playing and, and, and playing with, you know, Wii controllers and things like that. And the difference between that, between him and me, is also he had the internet. Right. So he was getting really smart really fast. And furthermore, rather than me in my zines and, you know, putting postage stamps on envelopes, he was posting his videos on YouTube. Right. And so I, you know, the editor of Wired found a 19-year-old Tijuana High School dropout because 
he was super smart and super good, and he had a broadcast medium, uh, a mechanism by which to get noticed. Impossible with the, without the internet. Yeah. Impossible without the internet. So um, anyway, by the time by the time um, you know I met him, um, and it was doing you know something like five million a, a year, and um, you know very sophisticated drones, and I was like, um, you de-risked this. <laughs> this is a thing. Uh, I think I'm gonna um, you know I had some venture capital buddies, and they've been saying we should. You should, you should take takes money. You should like make a company. You should quit your job. And I'm like, ask my wife what would it take. And she says, we've got five kids. You have to raise a million dollars for every kid. And I'm like, you do realize you don't get this money, right? <laughs> and she's like, yeah, I know, but just just a kind of a just like a benchmark. Yeah, a good rule of thumb. So that's what we did. Wow, amazing. Uh, and so <clears throat> and so you're growing that company, and then and then DJI comes along, and maybe tell that piece, and then and then we can yeah. talk about how how you shifted uh, in response. So we knew, we, I knew you know, right from the start, I mean way back you know, 10 years ago when I was just sketching out how I thought this was gonna go, I thought the industry, the drone industry was gonna go in three phases. There was gonna be the technology phase, which is what we were doing, the autopilots and the code mm -hmm. and kind of you know, the core getting robust to fly. Um, then, um, but, but um, the regulatory environment, we were, kind of, we were kind of finding all these loopholes and sort of gray spaces and regulations like recreational use and open source and mm -hmm. things like that. Um, commercial use weirdly was banned um, at the time by the FAA, but consumer use was allowed called recreational. Right. So I, I, I said, okay, well, we're going to do the core tech, then we're going to have to go where, where the technology is allowed, which is consumer. So we're going to have to turn this tech into a consumer electronics product, make it easy to use, kids, Christmas trees, things like that. And then, you know, and then by the time we've done that and created volume and, and scale, then presumably the commercial use will be allowed and then we'll put them to work. So it's going to be tech, tool, no, sorry, sorry, start again. It's going to be tech, toy, and then tool. Mm -hmm. um, so it was all planned out. Um, and the idea was each one would sort of take us up by an order of magnitude and size. So the tech side would take us to 10 million. The toy side would take us to 100 million and then the you know revenues and then the tool side would take us to a billion over some some period of time right you know, a decade maybe um, so we were right about everything except for some key things um, we and when <laughs> so the the tech side absolutely got to 10 million that was no problem um, dominated that mm -hmm. um, then others came along that's great but you know I think we as a kind of a, a, a group of companies like ours open source you know bottoms up very cheap and fast. Right. Got, that went to 10 million, 10 million really easy. Then on the consumer electronics side, um, that actually turns out to be a very different skill set. That's about manufacturing at scale, it's about design, it's about simplicity. It's basically turning a flying robot into, into um, you know, a box that you can open under the Christmas tree and just press a button with no training, it just works. And it right. turns out that it's actually, yeah, it's actually um, harder to take a technology that, like, like, that, like that and sell to children than it is to sell them to trained pilots because mm. trained pilots will read the instructions and they have mm. they know how to do this so the kids just expect magic they expect you know they got their iPad generation they expect you, you open the box you, you, you turn on your phone and it just works right making a flying robot just work sense and avoid AI navigation sure. all those kinds of super hard right so that was um, that was a challenge that's and that's always a challenge with the core tech projects especially open source ones is that you know that making it easy to use and simple it's just not in the DNA you know, so that was that required a company, um, and then um, and then you know scaling, so it's you know you can make it at, at mass scale, retail distribution support, um, uh, you know more reliability. Those were all sort of non-native, but we, we we did all that, created a great product. Then there was the last bit that was hard, and that was the cost. 
Mm -hmm. um, so we had a, uh, a, a really nice product um, called Solo, and the bill of materials on that one was about sort of 800 bucks, and we were expecting to sell for about 1500 which was the going price. Mm. And um, go out at 1500 and it you know, sold well, and you know, all the purchase orders come in. And DJI, which is just like us, pretty much founded, founded before us, um, but they're in Shenzhen. They're kind of, you know, the, the, DNA, the, the, the DNA there is like making iPhones for the last, not they weren't, but you know, the, the community there was making right. iPhones for the last 10 years and sort of taking notes the whole time. Um, they came out with a product uh, called the Phantom, which was, um, had come out earlier, um, but you know, the, the, the Phantoms kept iterating. Um, and they were really good, and they were iterating really fast, and their, um, the prices kept falling. And so $1,500 was the price, and nine months later, $500 was the price. And mm -hmm. um, below our bill of materials. Right. And it's like, there's no light at the end of that tunnel. We're just not going to be able to compete on, you know, because the, you know, I mean, who, how do you compete in a market like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. So we're like, um, that, you know, as, as, as one of the biggest, we were also one of the first to feel it. And so we're like, we're out. Well, so, so you've had some time to reflect on this and you've, and it's, it, it's probably distant, but do you remember that moment kind of when you first kind of realized that, that oh shit moment? Um, there, were, um, there were two oh shit moments. Um, one oh shit moment was watching the prices fall and saying, you know, going from, you know, we're a value proposition to, well, we're expensive, but you know we're worth it. Right? <laughs> you, you've heard that that yeah. story before, and then, and that, that was that was that was um, bad. But we were also the first to get. I mean, behind you, um, we're not the wired offices right now. Behind you is like one of the kiosks that we had at, at Best Buy, mm. and, and so we made like some like three thousand of these kiosks, and we were the first to get into retail. Wow! And you know, Best Buy loved it, and it was we created the category. It was mind blowing. Yeah. And like six weeks after those went out, there were like four other kiosks from other people. And our wow. little, uh, you know, our, we, we, we were right about a category. We were wrong that we, about, our, about our ability to lock the category up and we were wrong about the price point. And so, um, you know, um, um, and our selling numbers were amazing. And, um, but we didn't know a lot about retail. And so we weren't really, we didn't have any access to the sell through numbers. We kept saying, so, you know, how's it selling? You know, and they they said yeah they said um, yeah you know I, we don't not, not quite sure we don't have all the details etc but you know but we, here's another ten million dollar PO, hmm. and it turns out that um, uh, the you know for all the reasons involving price and competition the sell through numbers were um, were not um, where we thought they were, and um, Best Buy said and we're going to cancel those POs. Oh wow, that's left. That was really bad. So that was that was the end of 2015. That was the end of 2015, mm -hmm. and since then you've done a, a radical pivot. Um, you, you kind of accelerated that uh, that speed to the commercial side, and, and yeah. regulations helped with that. Exactly. And then also uh, basically pivoted the business model, so you're not you're you're, you're out of hardware. Mm -hmm. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that transition. Yeah. So the intention was always to go from. I mean, I, I always wanted to be a software company, but you know, in the absence of commodity hardware, you have to make the hardware to put the software in. Of course. The assumption would be that the commodity hardware would come, it would be more like the Android. We'd be the Android of UAVs, and that, you know, there'd be a lot of people making smartphones, and our software would run in them. Um, that, that's actually probably going to be the case, but it didn't happen soon enough. Mm -hmm. um, so we're like, um, okay, well, you know, we're, we're not going to do drone software at all. We're instead, we're going to focus on the data. 
So that's ultimately where the value is going to be. And then the question is, um, which was, again, always the intention that we'd be moving to the software and data side. It just was, the idea is that we would we would take the consumer business to fund the growth of the commercial business. We right. didn't think the consumer business was going to hit a wall. Right, And we had to kind of start from scratch. Um, so, um, but, you know, but, we, but we, I was very happy being on commercial, very, very happy being on the data side. But which data? Is it going to be agriculture? Is it going to be insurance? Is it mm -hmm. going to be... Um, you know, um, search and rescue, things like that, and um, uh, you know, construction, which is where we ended up, mm -hmm. um, is not was not my first uh, choice. But um, uh, you know, we were sort of dabbling with it a little bit, and um, you know, a very good friend of mine, a guy named uh, Carl Bass, the then the CEO of Autodesk. Um, you know, he and I would, you know, he was pivoting Autodesk, not pivoting, but he was he was evolving Autodesk from a perpetual licensed CAD software company to a cloud-based company. And um, and you know one of the one of the pillars of Autodesk is the construction industry, things like AutoCAD. Mm -hmm. And there, and the, the big trend in construction was the notion of the digital twin. That you you know everything starts digital as a CAD file, but then the moment you start digging, it's it's now analog, and you can't manage it with the same tools. And the notion is that God, if we could only sort of continue a digital process through the entire project, that we'll be able to manage it better. It's a very inefficient, very undigital business. Um, mm -hmm. So how do you digitize a construction site, and the answer is reality capture. Mm -hmm. You use sensors and cameras and things like that to image the site, and then you make it so accurate that it, you know, that it, it, it sort of evolves the model. So that you start with a virtual model, and then it becomes a, a, you know, a living model, and it continues to evolve as the, as the project evolves. Um, so, so that was his notion that reality capture um, and this notion of building information modeling was the future of their business, and um, they just didn't have a capture solution. Hmm. Um, so I'm like, um, yeah, so obviously drones are the easiest way to, to capture a whole site. It wasn't clear that drones could do it at the accuracy required, so that was our job to prove, but we were able to do that. And then, and then the rest is plumbing. You know, so Autodesk became an investor, um, mm -hmm. and, um, and we ended up deeply integrating with Autodesk and this BIM and all this kind of stuff. And, and um, we're now on this, what we think is kind of, you know, the, the, the mega trend in construction, which is this notion of digital, mm -hmm. um, you, know, um, uh, you know, having these living models, being able to measure so you can manage. And, um, you know, today we use drones to, for reality capture, but we're, you know, we're going to expand to other forms, you know, inside, outside, LIDAR, photogrammetry. And, and just while we're kind of talking about construction tech uh, and, and, as, and construction as an industry, what a lot of people don't know is it's, it, it is one of the least digitized industries in the world. Uh, McKinsey ran that study mm. that you've probably seen. It, it said it's the second least digitized, um, yeah. second only to uh, agriculture and hunting. Um, yeah, I would. I would think even agriculture is kind of creeping up there. I don't know about hunting. Yeah, but, hunting but, not so much. But, yeah, but, but I mean, I think you have in your article you pointed out, um, you know, properly that not only is it not digitized, but it's also one of the few big industries where productivity is falling. Right. Not not rising. It's falling because there's very little, you know, core productivity improvement because of the lack of digitization and the increasing regulations on construction mean that you're kind of getting less, you know, out of each worker. And, and the, other th the other aspect of it is, it, the very simple way that I boil it down is industries that are simple to digitize are non-physical and highly repetitive. Mm -hmm. Whereas construction is the exact opposite. Exactly. It's highly physical and not repetitive at all. Almost bespoke. everything is bespoke. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so, which, yeah. Is, which is all true. Um, so we're not actually digitizing construction. We're digitizing the management. 
of construction. Mm. So what we do is we'll, is you'll, you know, so the way construction works, and people probably know this intuitively, is that you have a plan, a right. CAD file, and the CAD file is, is reduced into sort of, you know, a, um, uh, a schedule. The CAD file says, okay, today we're digging dirt. So the dirt diggers, you know, the bulldozers, whatever come in. Today we're laying foundation. Um, the foundation goes here, the wood has to go there, and it's all sort of very schedule-based, schedule and, um, and it's like a supply chain. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, people come in, concrete comes in, wood comes in, dirt goes out, um, et, et, et cetera. And, uh, you know, it's almost like you're building a factory right. from scratch with all, uh, without any of the traditional tools of, of factories, yeah. um, you know, supply chain management, all this kind of stuff. So as a result, things go wrong all the time. You know, the plumber shows up with the wrong pipes, the hole's in the wrong place, the concrete is laid, is laid wrong, you know, um, um, you know um, sometimes, uh, you know, um, you, you get stopped because, like, the, you know, the electrical guys just got, got, got sent to another, another, another project, and the whole project is stopped. Um, and, and so the notion is if you had a digital plan that was, like, every step of the way, that, that, you know, obviously no plan survives the first shot, right? So all CAD files, all digital plans do not survive the first spade of dirt. Something is a rock there, Indian mm-hmm. burial ground, mm-hmm. you know, something mm-hmm. like that. Um, so how do you keep updating the plan? And right now it's guys with clipboards and paper saying, rock found, you know, but how do you do it out of granularity that's actually useful, gives you confidence? And the answer is you gotta digitize it. You gotta, you gotta measure the site all the time. It's almost like a body. Mm. Right now, how do doctors manage you? And the answer is they ask questions, they make a best guess, and they probably get it wrong. But as we are able to instrument our body better with better tests and imaging and things like that, we'll probably do a better job of managing our health. And so it's the same sort of like it's like the you know the wearable you know revolution, but for but for uh, for construction sites. And that and that that if we do that, we're still going to have you know people carrying wood and. You know, there's that. It's still going to be very manual in that respect, but at least it'll be the right people at the right time with the right supplies, and so you have predictability about the outcome. And I guess in general, beyond just it being not so digitalized, why do you think there's so little uh, activity? Why, why, why do you think there's so little activity in that in that Venn diagram between tech and construction, uh, where in in a world where there's a considerable amount of activity in in ag tech? Uh, in totally. manufacturing, even in kind of automotive, yeah. What's what's construction? What's missing about construction? Where's that disconnect? You know, I've asked myself that m- many times, and I don't. You know, in 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 ag, and I don't think there is quite as much innovation as I would have liked to see in ag. So the re- one of the reasons we didn't go into ag is, is because of that. With ag, it turns out that the uh, that farmers are often insulated from market forces. They have things like crop insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they're paid to not grow crops, etc. So you know the the industry is so has been inefficient for so long that the market has kind of adapted to 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 shield you from the, the economic consequences of inefficiency. Hmm. Um, construction doesn't really have that. Uh, you know, you, well, it, it, at first pass, construction doesn't have it. So you don't have like you know federal programs that bail you out if your programs if your if your project's late. But what construction does have is a um, is a lack of transparency in in pricing. So um, if Slight segue, if you ask Elon Musk why he went into space, mm-hmm. you know, y- you and I would probably think material science or computers or, you know, something techie. But um, that's, not, that's not why. He went into space because of something called cost plus economics, which is that the traditional aerospace industry was based on military kind of procurement stuff, which is cost plus. You sort of say, what's it going to cost you? Mm-hmm. And you say, come up with a number. And they say, like, we'll pay you 10% more than that. That's your profit margin. So there's no incentive to lower your costs because you're always going to be paid more than your costs. 
And a lot of construction falls into that category of cost plus, mm -hmm. which is that the, it is that someone else is going to pay you. If you overrun, you're going to get paid. Now, there's other ways. This, sometimes you actually get you have to actually kind of meet a, meet a, a target. But often, if you've ever had construction done yourself, you know they gave you a quote. You know this bathroom is going to cost forty thousand dollars, and lo and behold, shit happened. Over budget. Over budget. Behind, behind schedule. Behind schedule, and you ended up paying sixty thousand dollars, and it was six weeks late. And who pays? You pay. Right. Um, you know how could you avoided that? You know, probably somewhere, one of two things. Either they knew it was going to be, you know, 50% over and six weeks over, and they just under, underbid, right. which is actually quite common. Right. Or, you know, that you, 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 maybe you did make a mistake in your plans, or maybe you hadn't thought it through, but because you had no real transparency to the consequences of those mistakes, you didn't catch them soon enough. So on the, on the underbidding side, um, one, one thing I found interesting is uh, that the construction industry as a whole has actually pretty small margins. Very small um, margins. And like 3%. And in general, some of the smallest margins mm -hmm. of any industry. And uh, they also happen to be uh, pretty uh, poorly differentiated, right. which leads to increased competition, which leads to this underbidding problem where they right. know, like you said, they know it's going to be it's going to take more money, it's going to take more time, but in order to win the bid, they have to put in something competitive. Exactly. Um, and, which, and which means that it's basically, de basically, everyone's kind of deceiving each other. Right. Right. You say it's going to cause, co charge, it's going to cost X, but you know it's not going to cause X, right. cost X. Um, maybe the buyer knows it's going to, so it's all sort of little nudge, nudge, winky, and, and, and transparency would benefit. I mean, like one of the statistics you probably saw in the McKinsey report is that construction, average construction project is 80% over cost and 20 months behind budget. Mm. My brother-in-law runs a big construction company in Europe and I, I asked him about this and he says, it's not 80% over cost. We bid at 70% below cost <laughs> and it just goes to exactly where we thought it was gonna go. It's not an overcharging, it's an underbidding. Right, right. So in other words, it's all it's all opaque and, yeah. and um, and, and and you know and and, and it, it actually works, but that's only because at the end of the day, you know people aren't telling the truth about what's going on, and and everyone's okay with that. Right. But at the end of the day, you know, there's also real inefficiencies, um, and all that opacity over the over the over the charging is probably leading, encouraging inefficiencies, and sometimes in some markets, corruption. So at the end of the day, buyers, sophisticated buyers, are going to say. That's it. I want to know what's really going to cost. I want, it's all about risk management, right? right. I want to, I don't want to be surprised at the end of the day that it's going to cost more, or I don't want my I don't want like my my board to be surprised, even though I shouldn't have been surprised. I would actually like to know. I want absolute transparency into the costs. And um, how are you going to do that? Um, they're not experts in construction, and so they're going to say, um, "Look, I want a I want a, a living model, and I want a living model, and I want that living model to tell me." Going on, how are we doing in real time? In right. real time, right? How are you know? How, you know? How are we doing it on budget? How are we doing on the schedule? How are we doing on the quality, etc.? And I want to be able. I want a dashboard that shows me how my project is doing today, mm -hmm. as opposed to yesterday and, and 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 tomorrow. And if we get that, and we bring that sort of transparency and accountability to construction, I think you will magically see those productivity efficiency numbers go up. So, so let me ask you just a question on your experience in selling into the construction industry. Yeah. Um, it's it's known to be a, a conservative, have conservative culture. Totally Maybe part of that is because it hasn't been digitized. Maybe part of that is just because a lot of people have been working the same dra trades or same job for for a long time. What what's been your experience in in selling into those industries? What 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 what's was what was surprising? What was easier than you expected? What's been harder? 
Yeah. Um, so um, uh, overall, it is harder. So anytime you're doing enterprise, you know, SaaS, it's all the sales cycles are, are, are slow. So that was that that was that was harder. Um, what was easier was that. Um, so I, I told you about this BIM thing. Mm-hmm. Um, BIM is not just a trend; it's actually also becoming a bit of a mandate. You know, this, this construction is all about standards, and right. BIM is becoming a standard. Now the buyers have the influence here, and if a buyer demands BIM, then we kind of come along, you know, for as part of that package. Mm-hmm. We help captures that, and now countries are starting to demand BIM mm-hmm. um, because countries are huge buyers of construction projects. Accountability and transparency is obviously, you know, it helps them do their job, and they have um, they have power to mandate certain standards. So Japan did it. The UK doing uh, is doing it now. You're starting to see more and more of the big buyer, big country buyers mandate BIM. Japan, for example, is doing it for their their so-called eye construction effort um, for the 2020 Olympics. Um, so it has to be BIM. Hmm. Um, so if you're going to do a government project in Japan, it has to be BIM compliant. And now everyone's like, we got to get we're doing BIM. You know, we don't get the we don't get the, the bid if we don't do BIM. What is how do we do BIM? Right. So, so it's, it's a forcing function. So there's a timing issue. So it's it fe- it's feeling more that the time is now for for BIM, and and uh, you might be in the right place, right time. Exactly. I think we went from sort of, sort of intuitively, technologically, it felt like it was the right way to go, um, but it doesn't matter what I think as a technologist. What matters is that the you know economic decision makers um, uh, make it in. Enough of the buyers recognized that this was the path to accountability to mandate it, and enough of the construction companies who wanted that decided they were just going to move as a result. Got it. Got it. A little bit like you know, in, in ag, I, I I assumed that climate change was going to be the forcing function for new tech, mm-hmm. um, just because it, it disrupts the traditional methods, and maybe it will be. Um, um, so I mean, I think anytime you're anytime you're trying to you know transform a traditional industry, you need a you need an asteroid. Mm-hmm. Some sort of forcing function. It has to be really quite violent. <laughs> right. You know, it's either going to be bad or it's going to be good. Um, but you need to force people to change. So, so what? Are, and what other trends or technologies are you seeing that are being adopted by the construction tech industry beyond BIM, beyond what you're doing day to day in 3D R? The, the, the other is automation, and we are also a little bit. You know, part of what we do is we automate the survey function. Um, automation is coming um, to construction not because they're super hungry for robots. Um, but because they have a chronic labor shortage, mm-hmm. you and I have talked about this a little bit before. But right. um, you know, uh, we, we think about you know, people talk a lot about how robots are going to replace people. There's certain sectors where we don't have enough people, and there's no prospect of having enough. Nursing is a good example. Elder care, and construction is um, at least six hundred thousand people short in the United States. It's the, the, the gating factor on projects. So we have to talk about you know whether it's kind of rebuilding after hurricanes or building new roads and infrastructure or just housing and, 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 and buildings, you know, um, there's a huge demand for more of this and just aren't enough construction workers. And you're like, how can that be? And the answer is um, three things. Um, uh, number one, it's, it's a generally aging um, right. workforce. It's not a, you know, not sexy, not considered a, a very sexy domain for, for many people, younger people. Um, number two, um, uh, changes in immigration policy, mm. um, including you know making um, uh, you know Mexican and other Latin American workers feel unwelcome in the United States has really deprived you know a, a lot of the especially seasonal uh, workforce is now gone. Mm. And thirdly, um, drugs, um, both um, uh, both the opioid epi- epidemic because construction is one of the um, highest um, sources of workplace injury, right? Which gets people on painkillers, which gets them hooked on painkillers. And secondly, and this is crazy, and maybe somebody listening is going to turn this into a company, um, many construction companies drug test. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and if, for example, if you if you um, if you use cannabis in the last thirty days, you can't work on a construction site. At the same time, many states have legalized cannabis. Right. So in Colorado, you can legally smoke pot. You just can't work on a construction site wow. if you have. Wow. And this is because there, there's a um, there's a kind of a, 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 a glitch in our in our assessment of risk when it comes to alcohol. We have the notion of impairment. You can't operate heavy machinery when you're, when you're drunk. And we can test for the breathalyzer about impairment, but we don't have an impairment test for, for cannabis. Right. We can only tell whether you've been using it or not, but we don't know whether you're impaired. Um, so that's, so clearly we, you know, I think it's a legitimate concern about impairment, but it's not legitimate to concern about use of marijuana in, in, in the last 30 days. So what we need is an impairment test for cannabis. Mm, okay, you hear that entrepreneurs get, go after that. Um, but, but on the automation side, I, I would agree, um, and, and I think it kind of ties to something we think about is, especially tying to this aging workforce, and that whether it's for the safety reasons or mm. for the physical demands of the job, or just the, the society's perception of, of what a construction worker is or, or, or looks like or should be like, um, the younger generations aren't following their, their parents into this, right. into this job. And, and part of our view is that uh, this evolving the role of the construction worker to this role of the construction robot trainer operator is a much sexier, more interesting, totally. safer, uh, more stimulating job that, that younger people might want. And it Absolutely. might go to solve this labor shortage issue. When you think about uh, a lot of construction uh, work, um, it is bruising stuff, right. right? It is bricks this and digging that and you know, and, and dr- you know, hole, dr- drilling holes, et cetera, jackhammers. I mean, you can just see the, the damage it does. Um, you know, if those things, if the kind of the, the you know, the, the demanding, bruising, mind-numbing parts of the job can be automated, letting people go from bricklayer to brick design, you know, to brick wall designer, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, this is a good thing. And we saw it in, in manufacturing. We saw, we saw, um, we saw, you know, workers go from like, you know, screwing on bolts to operating CNC machines. Mm. And that was, that was difficult because uh, it, rather than it being a transition from manual manufacturing to automated manufacturing, what happened is that manual manufacturing went away, went to China, and, you know, and, 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 and very little was left. Um, construction's not going anywhere, right? Construction is by definition in, on it's site. Here, right. right. So, so it's not like you know, crappy construction jobs are going to become low-paid co- low you know, Indian construction jobs. They're going to be done here. They're right. going to be done by people. Or they're going to be done by machines. Right. Yeah. It's robust to globalization exactly. in, in that respect. Huh. Interesting. Um, why don't we Why don't we switch to the uh, rapid fire mode? Yeah. Of just Just and this is more focused back on you. Um, so I guess just first basic question is, what do you do for fun? Um, well, so so sadly, um, I uh, so ten years ago for fun, I, I started a drumming community, and then I, that turned a hobby into a, a job. I industrialized <laughs> my hobby, which which was good for my job but bad for my hobby. <laughs> that wasn't fun anymore. Now I'm doing the same thing again, but not with drones, but with our autonomous cars. Oh. So I have something called DIY Robocars, which is modeled after DIY drones, and no it's way. now and it's now one of the uh, biggest autonomous car communities. We do autonomous car racing. Wheel to wheel, Whoa. do it every month, and we do it at a sm- smaller scale, like you know, one one tenth scale, um, so that when they crash, nobody gets hurt. Right. <laughs> um, so so yeah, we um, you know um, once again, um, you know, we're doing something that the big guys won't do. Um, you know, wheel to wheel autonomous car racing, trying to beat humans, and the reason they don't do it is because because um, they don't want to like you know break 
cars or hurt people or, or, or be embarrassed. We're happy to break cars. Nobody mm -hmm. gets hurt and we're happy to be embarrassed as well. So um, there's about 10,000 people now in, in this community uh, around the world. Um, we have um, races every other month in Oakland. Nice. And um, we'll check one out. We're going to be doing one at uh, Google I.O. We did one at AWS reInvent. We're doing, um, so this is becoming, you know, sort of, once again, my hobby is becoming, it's starting to feel a little bit like a job because <laughs> it's so cool. You know, these big tech, these big tech conferences are like, can you have an autonomous car race in our tech conference? And I'm like, yeah, sure. That sounds like fun. <laughs> now it's like one a month. Um, but anyway, so wow, yeah, I play tennis. <laughs> so, so here's a here's a slightly harder question, um, which is, what do you bel believe that others don't, or or what's your most unpopular opinion? Well, I'm not going to tell you any of my most unpopular. <laughs> uh, <laughs> top ten. <laughs> I'm not even going to tell you tell you about the, about the top ten. Um, well, first of all, I'm just a chronic optimist. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I mean, uh, uh, born British, etc. You know, you know. Um, uh, I think we're going to muddle through. You know, I don't think North Korea is going to bomb us into oblivion. I don't think that Trump is going to bomb us into oblivion. <laughs> I think we're going to muddle through. It's probably going to be fine. <laughs> By the way, there's, there's a you know there's a very scientific reason, which is you know you know the concept of Bayesian statistics, right? And Bayes well, I m maybe you learned it at one point. Maybe you could refresh me. All drones on Thomas cars use use something called Bayesian statistics, which is um, uh, common filters and things like that. But basically, it, it, mm. it's based on the assumption that the most likely future is the present. The things, the things tend to be, you know, mm. if you had to bet on something, if you're walking down the street, you probably bet on you're being just a little bit ahead of where you were at the last sample. <laughs> um, so I feel very Bayesian about this. I feel like, you know, when you look back to the long arc of history, we tend to muddle through. We tend, you know, tend to find solutions. Uh, we tend not to kill ourselves. So as a result, I tune out all politics. Mm. I don't vote. I don't listen to the radio. I couldn't tell you what Trump has done lately. Um, I just don't care. I don't wow. care because that's all high frequency noise. Yeah. And I'm thinking, you know, longer term, I believe in science. I believe that kind of fundamentally we're good people, more good people than bad people. We'll find solutions. We'll muddle through. Wow. You probably have much better peace of mind and concentration when you're filtering all that stuff out. Well, I get to worry about running companies, yeah. and finances, yeah. you, you and things have like a, that. You have enough but, on your But I can ignore plate. what's going on in Washington. Sure. Um, what, what's been the most uh, influential book or or resource that you've consumed? Um, I've been, I've drawn to um, a few business and science and, and technology books and a lot of science books. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, I mean, the most influential business book or sort of business-ish book was actually written by, um, that I read was, was written by Kevin Kelly. It's called Out of Control. Hmm. And as you can see, this harkens right back to the punk rock and other things. Um, but then, but the, the notion, so I'm, I'm very drawn to the, um, I'm very sort of, um, let's say, um, uh, repelled by top-down control structures mm. like governments and, mm -hmm. and, and Mrs. Williams, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and very drawn to kind of bottoms-up, you know, organic ones. So I'm like a super capitalist, you know. I believe in sort of, you know, you know, tr you know, you know the, uh, the, the conventional economic models of markets and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and out of control was based very much on on sort of um, biological um, models. You know, ants and hives and, mm. and things like that. But um, I think you know, I think evolution and you know nature and sort of you know statistical probability rather than certainty is a, um, a very hard thing to be for people to wrap their heads around, but a really important concept to understand. Mm. So you know, the idea. You know, you, you know, we 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 have statistical probabilities rather than certainties. Right. Right. So we'll, we'll probably muddle through. <laughs> gotcha. 
that's I'm gonna have to pick that one up. Um, last kind of question before uh, we, we wrap up is if you could put a billboard in downtown San Francisco or or any major city uh, that everyone could see, what would it say? You know, I, I mean, it's, it's very tempting to do the, you know, the keep calm, carry on um, <laughs> uh, thing. Um, well, San, San Francisco is a special case mm -hmm. because San Francisco is infuriating. Mm. You know, um, you live in San Francisco, mm -hmm. I live near San Francisco, and you know, you, you, you can't go, you can't walk into San Francisco without feeling like, it, how, how did this happen? This housing crisis, the homeless, the, you know, the tent cities, the, you know, the, the, you know, the, the lack of infrastructure, traffic, et cetera. You just, it is, um, you know, it is, uh, it's obviously a reflection of our ego and our id, right? San Francisco, the tech industry, Silicon Valley is our ego, and San Francisco, the dysfunctional community, is our is our id, mm. and um, you know everything I love about bottoms up, you know, democratized things ends up with these kind of local minima <laughs> like mm. San Francisco politics. It's like democracy did that, right? You know, uh, what do we what if we believe in democracy and we ended up with this kind of gridlock? Um, you know, what what are we getting wrong here? Um, so um, I don't know how to turn that into billboard. Um, so so how do you, how do you ra rationalize those two I, kind of competing? I think Joe Blair from Mayor is what my <laughs> billboard <Okay>. says. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Well, great. So uh, that's I think that's the last question I had, uh, except for how how can people get in touch with you? How can people keep in touch with 3DR? What what's going on? Yeah. Thank what's you. Um, so I mean, the company's 3DR.com. I'm I'm kind of um, I live on Twitter. Um, for better or worse, although I've blocked. By the way, little tip, mm. um, you can put um, keywords that um, you can filter out on Twitter, and so I may I suggest the keyword Trump, for example, and anything else that makes uh -huh. you unhappy, block it out. So my, my, Twitter, my Twitter world is a happy world full of smart people saying interesting things. There may be angry Twitter out there, but I don't know about it. There may be political Twitter, don't know about it. Mm -hmm. um, so um, my, my Twitter handle is, uh, is a Chris A with a C-H-R-1-S-A. And um, DIYRoboCars.com is where you can hang out with us and see fully autonomous neural network computer vision cars racing head to head and crashing all the time. Awesome. Well, I'm definitely going to check that out. I'm sure some other people will too. Well, I just want to thank you, Chris, for, uh, for your time today. It's been amazing just walking through your, your path and then talking construction tech and then uh, hearing all your unconventional views. So, so thanks, Thank thanks for the time. And thanks for coming and doing some scanning while you were here. Absolutely, that was, that was a lot of fun. Playing with drones is, is always uh, entertaining. So, so thanks for having me. Awesome. And thanks everybody for listening, appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Epic Human Podcast. Please remember to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever app you happen to be using. And if you want to keep up to date on the latest Epic Human Podcast, please follow us on Twitter or Facebook at Epic Human Pod. And if you have any ideas for guests or feedback on the show, please reach out. I would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.